Good morning, church. Welcome to Trinity. It's, it's good to be together. My name is Matthew. I'm the pastor here on the east side, and thank you so much for joining us this morning. Um, let's begin by reading our text. It's from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1, verses 2 to 11. Then we'll pray, and then we'll jump into to what God has for us today. As it is written in the prophet Isaiah, See, I am sending my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John the baptizer appeared in the wilderness, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And people from the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem were going out to him and were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair, with a leather belt around his waist. He ate locusts and wild honey. He proclaimed, The one who is more powerful than I is coming after me. I am not worthy to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And just as he was coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens torn apart and the spirit descending like a dove on him. And a voice came from heaven. You are my son, the beloved With you, I am well pleased. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you are God's beloved son and that you have come to show us what God is like. That if we want to know what is the animating center of all that exists, we only need to look at you. God, help us to see you today. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Um, Before I jump into today's sermon, I just want to really quickly point your direction uh, towards a meeting we're having on Tuesday night. It's a really important, special, church-wide meeting. You don't have to be a member to come to this. It's going to be over Zoom. Chris McDaniel, Trinity's lead pastor and Westside pastor, and myself will be sharing some, what what I think are some really exciting updates and changes that will be happening here on the east side in the next uh, several months. And so if you have any availability, please try to carve out an hour. 8 p.m. will be done by 9 on Tuesday night. Uh, for us to all gather together on Zoom and for us to share these updates with you. You can find out more about this on our website. Also, you should have had in your mailer that came, the weekly that came today, um, some uh, information on how to log in to the, the Zoom meeting. So here's what I'm going to do today. I want to do two things. First, uh, I want to sort of set up the year for us. I want to talk about what it is that we're going to be doing for the next several, the next 11 months, essentially, as a church. What's going to be our focus? And then second, I want to talk about how this text in Mark actually um, lays the groundwork for all of that. So um, let's jump in. I also want to say really quick, there's a, this is going to be a heady message. I, I don't always teach this uh, this way, um, but I think like as we try to lay some foundations, there's going to be a bit more just like, it's going to be a bit of a thinky talk. Uh, so if you, um, th- some of you are going to love that. Some of you may not. Uh, just try to stick with me. I think that this is important in us understanding why we're approaching this year uh, the way that we are. So about an hour before Jesus had a cross laid on his back and he's led out of Jerusalem, he's having what would be really his last conversation um, with his prosecutor and judge, uh, the regional governor, Pontius Pilate. And he said these words to Pilate. These are really his last words that he said. For this I was born, 
And for this, I came into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone who belongs to the truth listens to my voice, to which Pilate retorts, what is truth? Well, truth is um, important, although it is uh, an idea, a concept that it, that is, I think, really confusing in our day and age. And that's because of the time that we're living in. So for centuries upon centuries, the dominant Western philosophy that guided really everything about the, the, the culture that we lived in, the, the sort of art we made, came out of the Enlightenment. Enlightenment rationalism guided and governed our way of thinking. Uh, and out of that came what we, was known as, as modernism. But in the late or mid-20th century, out of the same nation that gave us the Enlightenment, a series of French thinkers and philosophers, guys like uh, Jacques Derrida and Michel Foucault and Jean-Francois Lyotard and others, they began to uh, deconstruct language. And they began to, to talk about how what we really need to understand is that all language is interpretive and interpreta interpretation is, a, is an authoritative claim. And oftentimes it is those who have authority that are making these claims, but really all language is essentially open for interpretation. And so with the deconstruction of language came the destabilization of meaning. And with the destabilization of of meaning comes um, the loss of clarity or uh, truth. What does something mean? What is a thing? And this is, um, this is the waters we've been living in really ever since, and it has slowly sort of eclipsed modernism. So in 1878, there is a, a, a novelist, Margaret Hungerford. She coins the phrase in this novel, beauty is in the eye of the beholder, which is, um, which is just a, an, uh, it's a, it's, it's true that beauty is relative. You see, see something as beautiful, I may not, and, and vice versa. 110 years later, though, interestingly, the Harvard biologist Ruth Hubbard uh, reappropriates the phrase for an essay she's writing, in which she writes, truth is in the eye of the beholder, which is why you and I now say things like, you just need to speak your truth uh, into this moment, which is a way of saying, you need to share and speak your perspective, your vantage point, which is true. Your vantage point, your perspective is a true perspective. But the question is, is like, is it true? Does that word mean anything uh, anymore? Uh, these are, you know, like, this is the world we're living in right now. Now, even though postmodernism is really already being kind of ushered off the stage by post-postmodernism, the reality is that for you and me, we don't even think about this, but subjectivity, uh, relativism, um, deconstructionism, these really do guide the way that you and I think. They, they are the waters that we're swimming in. Uh, in fact, we saw it this this year, um, just in living color. There are in this in this country right now two very different, um, robust, seemingly impenetrable versions of reality that tens of millions of people on both sides adhere to. These are not two different perspectives on what's going on. These are two different under like versions of what is going on, and they have. Uh, they don't cross over at all. They're completely uh, opposite from one another. So this is probably not like new, but it has been certainly, uh, I mean, it's, it's been front and center for us this year. Now, what a climate like this means for religion is that religious faith no longer is a thing that we go to because it is true. It is a thing we go to because uh, of an experience that it offers to us. Um, it becomes a, 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 the, a quest for some sort of existential uh, meaning, but it's not actually meeting this basic, like, is this a true thing that I'm believing, but is this 
working for me. And in that way, we really have consumerized religion. It's why we have, honestly, the church culture we have today, where people just kind of go from church to church to one religion to another or make sort of a hodgepodge in their own making because we're all just trying to find a thing, not necessarily that is true, because who can know what is true, but we want to find something that that works, that that makes us feel uh, a certain way. And Jesus counters that idea, that practice, that culture with his words to Pilate. For this reason, I came into this world to bear witness to the truth. Or as, uh, in other words, as, as Tim Keller says, don't believe in Christianity because it's exciting or because it's practical or because it's relevant. Believe in Christianity because it's true. Because if it's not true, then in the end, it won't be practical or relevant. The gospel writers loved to present Jesus as this figure who was true. And in John's gospel, he probably does the most philosophical version of this. He begins his gospel with, with these words. In the beginning was the word. Um, the, the Greek word for, for word there is the word logos. And that is important, not just because I want to show off that I went to seminary, uh, but because the idea of logos is actually a Greek philosophical thought that had been for half of a millennia dominating Greek philosophy. 500 years before the time of Jesus, the Stoic philosopher Heraclitus, uh, Heraclitus first put forward this idea that the logos was reason, that it was the impersonal, rational principle governing the universe. That's what the Logos is. It's reason. It's holding everything together. 250 years before Christ, the uh, philosopher Zeno further develops the idea. He teaches that Logos, the Logos, is, quote, the general law, which is right reason. It pervades everything. He says it is the same as Zeus, the supreme head of the government of the universe. So the Greeks who I mean, even once the, when the, when, well, even after the Romans had conquered really the, the known world, Greek thought continued to be the pervasive influence in how people understood the world in which they lived. And for 500 years and well after the time of Christ, we know this because all, all the way into the second century AD, when Gnosticism was really gaining a lot of steam, they were still talking about what is this Logos. They were trying to understand what is the thing that holds all of us together? How do we understand what's the central defining reality that all of us can hook ourselves into and say, this is why I am here. This is what the purpose of my life is. Now, why is this important? Well, it's important because the New Testament writers in writing their gospels are having a conversation with the dominant philosophies of their day. They're, 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 they're intentionally sort of taking on these dominant philosophical schools. And so John begins with a statement that everybody would have agreed with in principle, but very few people actually believed, which is that in the beginning, there was this defining logic, this truth, this logos that held all things together. And this logos was God and this logos was with God. And so John begins with this statement and everybody would have essentially nodded their head. And yet at the same time, um, most people by the time of Jesus, and this is true, I think in our day and age as well, most people by the time of Jesus actually had decided that really there was no logos, that, um, that really what the Logos was something that we, had, we, we were trying to, 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 to create in order to make sense of reality, but there wasn't any evidence that there was any real defining central uh, truth that holds all things together. 
And out of this sort of abandonment of the idea of Logos came the two dominant philosophical schools of Jesus' day, the Stoics and the Epicureans. The Epicureans said, there's no logic, there's no Logos, therefore, let's eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Let's throw big parties, enjoy your life, your body is full of pleasure sensors, feed those pleasure sensors, have a good life. The other school was the Stoics, and the Stoics said, well, there is no no defining logic, there is no uh, greater reason why we're all here, but we must act as though there is. Because to abandon that idea would be to make life intolerable for one another. We have to act like morals have some sort of grounding. We have to pretend that justice is intrinsic in the universe, even though we can't root it in anything. We have to choose to believe that there is some central defining truth that holds all life together, or else we will spin off into nothing which of course is what nihilism is, uh, which is uh, still around with us today. So therefore, be strong, be moral, be generous. We can't tell you necessarily why to do these things other than that it's rooted in some kind of like, because if not, then what will we do to one another? These are really still, in many ways, the two dominant options for a person who says, I don't believe that there is a God. I don't believe that there's a central truth. That either it's like, so I'm just gonna enjoy my life. I'm going to do what I want to do. Or I don't know if I can like find an existential or philosophical reason for why I think that this is good, but I do think that this is good. And so I'm going to do good work. I'm going to give my life to good endeavors. I'm going to care for my neighbor. I'm going to enjoy my life uh, and and so on. And yet, and yet, I, I think it's true that all of us, the heart yearns in some really fundamental way for a logos. We want to understand why we're here. We want to understand uh, what is the purpose for my existence, or to say it another way, what is the thing that's holding all of this together? And if there really never was a logos, this is sort of an aside, but if there is no logos, I think it's actually a strange phenomenon that we would even think to try to create one. Um, because the heart, but the heart yearns, the heart yearns for it. Without a central and unifying truth, our mission is basically to try to lead a meaningful life, whatever that means for us. So everyone develops their own version of the facts, of the truth. And we try to live such a life so that those who know us best at the end of our life can stand in a room with one another and without lying too much, talk about what great people we were. Um, And that's our legacy. And that's really what's left when there's no higher answers. But John begins the gospel with this super clear, very stark, no, there is a logos. There is a defining reality. There is a truth that holds all things together. There is a fundamental principle, a governing truth at the center of the universe. It's not subjective. It's not mine to create. I don't make my own purpose. It just is. There is a logos. And he says, and the logos became flesh. The logos became Jesus of Nazareth. And this year, 2021, what we want to do is intentionally think through what that means. That what Jesus was here to do was to not just simply offer a way of life. He wasn't just simply here to, 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 to rouse emotions in our heart. He wasn't just simply here to, to right some wrongs. He was here to also tell us what is at the center of all things. What is true? As Christians would say, what is it orthodox? What is the right way of, of viewing and understanding the world in which we live? Jesus said it this way in John 14. He says, I am the truth. Now, I want to acknowledge before going any further that this idea of truth, meaning that I have truth and you don't, and I need to tell you what that is so that then you can know what I know. That idea of truth has been used to 
fuel supremacy movements. It's the energy behind colonialism. It's the energy behind fundamentalism. And, and both of those things have done tremendous damage. Fundamentalism has damaged many people I know, many people in this church. Colonialism has damaged unknown numbers of people throughout the history of the world. It has fueled suppression and oppression of foreign cultures. It was the fuel behind the, the Roman Catholic missionary movement of the 17th and 18th centuries and behind the Protestant missionary movement of the 19th and 20th centuries. And as well-meaning as some of those people may have been, this idea that I know what's right and you don't, so I have to go to you and tell you what is right, as well-meaning as some of them may have been, the, 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 the re result of that, the consequence of that, was the stamping out of an extinction of untold numbers of cultures and languages and artifacts and, and, and songs and folklore all in the name of truth. And so when I say to you, Jesus is the truth, he's the truth, I would not be surprised at all if some of you immediately begin to feel some PTSD around it, or you just feel angry about it. Who am I to say that? Um, how, how could I possibly claim to know what is uh, the truth? And, and look, I just want to say, um, when we say Jesus is the truth, this is not us making some sort of authority claim over other people. We are just, when Jesus says, I am the truth, what he is doing, if you look at the context, he is answering a question. He's not creating a hurdle for you. He's, he, he's not trying to, to, to stir up a problem in the world. He's actually answering the question. Everybody is looking for the answer to this question. And Jesus comes on the scene and says, I'm the answer you've been looking for. Everyone's been looking for this all along. I'm the thing. And that's, that is good news. That is uh, euangelion. He's the truth that we're looking for. So truth, therefore, is just simply like, it's a declaration of what is, and it lives outside of us. I don't own it. Um, I can't lay claim to it. It is sustained on its own merits. And all I can do, all any of us can do, is with the most humility, seek to understand what can be understood, always trying to move closer towards it and recognizing all the while that there is more that I will, there is more that I do not know than that I do. There is more that can, that there, there is, there is more that cannot be known than there is that can be known. Um, and I'll just, I just want to say, once you accept that as a Christian, you're going to be a lot more relaxed. That, that there's actually more that we don't know than that we do know. You're going to be a lot happier person too. You're going to be a better neighbor. Um, <laughs> you're going to be a better friend once we accept that. But, we can, but Jesus says, I am here to give you the answer. And the answer is, I'm the answer. So what does that mean for us? How do we move towards that? Well, in the closing minutes of our, of our sermon, now that I've talked philosophically for a long time, I just want to say, uh, I want to pull one thing out of this text that we just read from Mark. Remember, as we said last week, Mark is perfect for our discovery of truth. He's perfect for this question of like, what is the true thing? Because Mark's big idea is this is the gospel. This is the declaration. This is the political proclamation of what is, what has happened. And he does it with no fluff. His language is terse. It's, 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 it's one thing after another after another. He is not here to try to paint landscapes for you. He, he, do, he doesn't care if you know what color the flowers were. He wants you to know this is what happened and this is why it matters. So the curtain lifts and John is on the scene. John, this crazy, wild man out in the wilderness, eating bugs, wearing scratchy clothes. And he says, I'm here for one purpose, to prepare the way, to point a finger to someone. The one who comes after me is greater than me. He says, I'm not even worthy to serve this person as a slave to him. He's that much better than me. 
And he points the finger to Jesus, and all of a sudden, scene change. And there's Jesus on the scene, coming up out of the water. And this time, it's not John pointing the finger to Jesus. It's the Father pointing the finger to Jesus. It's the Father saying, this is my Son, the Beloved, in whom I am well pleased. And, and what I just want to say to you in closing is this. That is the gospel. The gospel is not a series of events. It's not a, a, a number of historical facts. It's not something that just happened in real time and space. Sure, it is that. But even more so, the gospel is that that central logic, that defining truth, that thing that we're all looking for is a person. And that person is Jesus. A man who dies for his enemies and prays for those driving nails into him. This is the defining reality of all of life. That is the good news. That the thing that we're all looking for, every one of us is searching for in one way or another. And we're going to so many different things to find it. That there is an answer. And the answer is this man. This poor, itinerant preacher. This brown-skinned Jewish man. Wandering the wilderness. This is the thing we've all been waiting for. The prophets, both old and new, Isaiah and John in this text, the Father and the Spirit, even Caesar himself is an arrow pointing to the true Caesar. Mark wants you to know from the very beginning, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus. Here's the beginning. Everything has been pointing and is pointing and will forever point to this man. In the book of Colossians, the letter that Paul wrote to the church in, in Colossae, he writes these words in the beginning of, of, uh, of his letter, and I want to read it to you, and I want to read it to you from, from Eugene Peterson's translation because it's so beautiful from the message. Uh, Eugene writes, We look at this sun, and we see the God who cannot be seen. We look at this sun, and we see God's original purpose in everything created. For everything, absolutely everything, above and below, visible and invisible, rank after rank after rank of angels, everything got started in him and finds its purpose in him. He was there before any of it came into existence, and he holds it all together right up to this moment. And when it comes to the church, he organizes and holds it together like a head does a body. He was supreme in the beginning. And leading the resurrection parade, he is supreme in the end. From beginning to end, he's there, towering far above everything, everyone. So spacious is he, so expansive, that everything of God finds its proper place in him without crowding. Not only that, but all of the broken and dislocated pieces of the universe, people and things, animals and atoms, get properly fixed and fit together in vibrant harmonies all because of his death, his blood that poured down from the cross. The central point of all that exists is Jesus, which means that the central point of my life and your life is Jesus. That you'll never be more in harmony with the universe in which you live You'll never be more in harmony with the people with whom you live. You will never be more in harmony with yourself than when he is the hub that's holding all things together. And so the question, I think, coming out of this, using the life of John as an example, is in what ways is my life pointing people's attention away from myself and to Jesus? And that doesn't mean that the people in my life are Christians even. In fact, I hope that <laughs> I hope that there are people in your life who aren't Christians. 
but in what way is my life really only explainable or the, or the, the places where I land on things really only explainable or a character if there is this central defining logic and that logic looks like a man who says, love your enemies. Greater love is no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. And so when we come to the table in a moment, and I hope you're able to join us, I know that some of you are not for various reasons, and I miss very much seeing you. As we come to the table in a minute, this is what we do. We, in taking communion, we are essentially remembering this most fundamental thing about us, that the very nourishment, or you could say the thing that will become the, the cells that animate our whole body, the electricity that keeps us going, it comes from this one who holds all things together. He is the center. And so, Jesus, we thank you that this is the good news. That the good news is not, we're bad people, but you loved us enough, so you did something about us so that we can be good people. But that's only just a small uh, facet of the much better news. That in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. This is, what, this is what true life is. Help us, God, to experience these things, not just as ideas, but as things that actually stir our hearts, settle our spirits, calm our anxiety, give clarity to our steps, and wisdom to our thinking. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. See you in a few minutes, friends. Um, grace and peace to you. Hope to see you all Tuesday night at the members' meeting. You are loved.